Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Freedom of the press isn't just important to democracy, it is democracy. We're here to hold elected leaders accountable. This is the Conversations on the Green podcast. I'm Jane Whitney. No matter which side of the aisle you're on, if you're exhausted and anxious, you're not alone. The latest Gallup poll shows 85% of Americans say the country is on the wrong track. Add in the election and our collective stress level is off the charts. Thankfully, our season finale guest is here to help ease that angst and share what history can teach us about this fraught chapter. We're honored to welcome the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of The Soul of America and his new book, His Truth is Marching On, John Lewis and the Power of Hope, historian John Meacham. Our conversation was recorded live during a virtual town hall on October 25th, 2020. We're so grateful that you were with us today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I have to confess to you, I billed this show last time as possibly a group therapy session because people really are just so anxious about what's coming up in this time that we're living in. It used to be that you would hear people would say, government is broken. Now they say, America is broken. And so as we grapple with being in the midst of this pandemic that's claimed over 200,000 lives and shattered millions of others, Uh, a cratering economy, climate change impacting with wildfires and hurricanes. All of this stuff is happening and we're not pulling together as one nation. We're so divided. And so I guess the first question is, do you think America's broken? Well, we're certainly stressed uh, and we are living in kind of an interactive version of the book of Exodus. So I think that we all have to sort of acknowledge that. But history is not a fairy tale. Uh, There is no uh, happily ever after, and there's really no once upon a time either. You have to have, I think, a historical sense of proportion, not in order to simply make yourself feel better for the sake of making yourself feel better. I'm not, you know, a historical Zoloft description, uh, though I feel that way sometimes. But I do think that by understanding that division is a relative thing. It's also a perennial thing that we can come to a a more rational sense of what's possible, uh, what we should focus on, what is uh, actually relevant to our, our public action. And we're simply never going to be a, an 80-20 country, a 90-10 country. It's, it's, we're not built that way. This is a big, complicated, disputatious, uh, incredibly complex country. And even at our moments that we think back and we go, oh, you know, Lyndon Johnson won so big in 64, uh, Nixon in 72, Reagan in 84, you know, those were periods where we got things done. Yeah, sort of. But those were 60-40, right? So 40% of the country 
is always pushing back against whatever the seeming consensus of the moment is. Okay, but I'm talking about something that's beyond pushing back. I'm talking about hyper-toxic hyper-partisanship. And I've heard you say that disagreement is the oxygen of democracy, but again, this is beyond that. As Yale historian David Blight says, we're two tribes with different sets of facts, different set sources for information, different stories, different narratives. And um, we're in a house, we can't even agree what the, what's holding the house up. So I guess what I'm talking about here is the intensity level. Okay, I love David uh, and uh, admire his, his work uh, inordinately. But let's think about this for a second. If you were a black Southerner until 55 years ago, white America held a certain set of facts, enough of white America, that thought you should be fundamentally disenfranchised and excluded from the equal protection of the law. You, Jane, have only been able to vote in this country for 99 years, right? If you look like me, if you're a boring white Southern male Episcopalian Protestant, you know, things tend to work out. Right. Uh, I just think that proportion's important here. Is, are our politics toxic? Absolutely. Is there a fundamental disagreement about the nature of reality and the uh, understandings of identity? Absolutely. My argument to you is that that same argument has shaped America from age to age. I want to make it clear, I'm parroting a lot of what I've heard in conversation, what some of our viewers have written in. So um, I guess I'm trying to be the voice of folks who aren't here talking with you. And, and another question I'll just ask you point blank, you hear people say all the time that maybe aside from the Civil War, but this is the worst chapter in our nation's history. Is this the worst chapter outside of the Civil War in our nation's history? Well, if we were here in 1968, uh, we would be dealing with political violence. Uh, Dr. King had been murdered. Senator Kennedy had been murdered. The Chicago Democratic National Convention had descended into chaos and violence. And next week, if we'd been talking 52 years ago, Richard Nixon would win 41% of the vote and George Wallace would win 13.5% of the vote. So almost 55% of the country exactly a half century ago, either wanted Richard Nixon or George Wallace of Alabama to be president. Now, I, I'm not trying to in any way diminish the divisions of the moment. I think that we are facing a, a fundamental question about our understanding of identity, our definition of progress, our capacity to use our brains as opposed to reacting with our guts to everything. Uh, I think that Walter Lippmann was right a hundred years ago when he wrote that the besetting problem of modernity was going to be that we would not see and then define, but that we would define and then see. So, but in terms of, of all the, so there, there's that. In terms of all the social science indicators, all the political science indicators, we are as divided as we have been since the 1850s. Uh, we have an extraordinarily uh, vanishingly small number of people who will actually cross the aisle to vote for someone of the other party. That's been my kind of my 
measure of bipartisanship. Uh, and we ha we've had polling really since 1952. 40% of Republicans voted for Lyndon Johnson in 1964. 40% of Democrats voted for uh, Richard Nixon in 1972. 2% of Democrats voted for Donald Trump. So you have this structural partisanship. Structural racism is a problem that we recognize in this country. One of the besetting issues going forward is going to be this structural partisanship. Because 30 years ago, 32 years ago now, George Herbert Walker Bush of Greenwich, Connecticut, uh, Greenwich Country Day School, uh, carried California, uh, carried 40 states. It's almost impossible to imagine a presidential election at that level, I think. Uh, and it's certainly impossible to imagine a 49-state victory uh, like, like we had in 1984. So the, the nature of our division is, and you, you, it's implicit in your question, is our seeming incapacity to view reality as anything other than that which we want to see, right? We, if we see something, we want to either blame the other guy or recast it if we know somehow in our hearts that we, our, our side, whichever that is, is at fault. And so I think the first step back is going to be a recovery and a reconnection with the capacity of reason to play a role in our public life. And I had an old boss once, uh, before, I should say, before Kate Medina became the ruling figure of my life, uh, your neighbor, and the reason I'm here uh, is my beloved editor, Kate Medina. Right. Um, before Kate took over, uh, Charlie Peters was a boss of mine at the Washington Monthly. And we were once talking about how to define intellectual honesty. Uh, everybody says, I want to be intellectually honest. Well, what does that mean? Well, Charlie had a great line. He said, Intellectual honesty is the ability to say something good about the bad guys and bad about the good guys, if that's where the facts lead you. The big problem today in the country, and it is a definitional generational crisis, is the inability to let facts change our viewpoint. Our viewpoints are constant and the facts are shaped to fit that pre-existing worldview. And I'd submit that for all of their failings, the great insight of the founders was not simply about the promise of human equality, but it was the understanding that the public square could be structured in such a way that if enough of us were products of an enlightened era, as opposed to a superstitious era, that we could make a big complicated experiment in self-government work. Let's turn to the phrase which has become ubiquitous, the soul of America. Everybody uses it. Nobody really talks about what it means. Are we fighting for two different souls of America based on what we're talking about? You wrote a book, a Pulitzer Prize winning book by that title. How do you grapple with defining soul of America? Well, the soul of America to me is, and the, it's a fascinating philosophical question. What, is, what does it mean? Right. You, you ask exactly the right question. So soul in Hebrew and in Greek means breath or life. It's a synonym for that. So Plato talked about it. Socrates talked about it. Aristotle talked about it in the Hebrew and Greek scriptures. Uh, when God breathes life into man in Genesis, 
the, the, uh, life could be translated as soul. Uh, when Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends, life could be translated as soul. So by my definition, it's the essence of who we are. I don't think, and this is my view, it, is that the soul is either all good or all bad. I think it is an arena of contention in which our better angels, to use Lincoln's phrase, and our worst instincts do constant combat mm -hmm. to try to achieve temporary dominion over the other. And in a free government, this is particularly important because that's what we all do, right? I'm sure you're a much better person than I am, but I know that in the course of a day, my better angels and my worst instincts are always battling. And I'd love to say that those better angels won out more than half the time. Not sure that's entirely true. So why would the life of the nation be any different? We are, in fact, the sum of our parts. That's what a republic is. So that's at once scary because it puts a lot on us. But it's at once empowering because it puts it on us. And so our dispositions of heart and mind matter enormously. It's why politics is about values. It's not simply about the stock market. It's not simply about a piece of legislation. It's about whether we see each other as adversaries or as neighbors. And the most radical commandment that continues to shape our broad culture is to love your neighbor as yourself. Who wants to love their neighbor as themselves? Nobody wants to do that, right? I mean, I, I wish them well, you know, go for it. You know, I hope you do fine. But if it comes right down to it, do I really love my neighbor as I do myself? No, I don't. But in the effort, presumably progress comes because it's better to try than not to try. Let's talk about another phrase. You hear people say, this is not who we are. And I'll give an example, a recent example. 545 children who were separated from their parents at the border, uh, state sanctioned, some people would say kidnapping. Those 545 children have no parents and their parents are not in sight. And this is a policy that has been agonized over by people, or there are people who support it, think it's a good idea. But you hear people say, kidnapping children, that's not who we are. Except right now it is who we are. So how do you square that? It's, not, it's the, the better way to put it, and I've had this conversation with the Democratic nominee for president a couple of times, is not to say this isn't who we are because it is, but is to say, it's not who we want to be. We've been this way. Thank you. 1619, right? right? We, we have been this way. I'm, I'm sitting in Nashville, Tennessee on land that did not belong to folks who looked like me. Uh, I, I'm in a region and you and I are part of a country that was built on the labor of enslaved people, many of whom were kidnapped and brought here and sold into an economic and cultural and legal system that treated them as commodities and not as human beings. And if you want to talk about internment and that sort of thing, in the lifetime of uh, some folks who are watching, uh, we interred, interred, interned rather, 
that's my Chattanooga uh, pronunciation coming out. Uh, Japanese citizens, American citizens of Japanese descent, according to Executive Order 9066. You know, Franklin Roosevelt is rightly honored and hailed as the savior of capitalism and in many ways of democracy. He's also the architect of rounding people up and putting them in concentration camps in the United States in the middle of the 20th century. And I hate to keep going back to this, but the first presidential election conducted in the United States of America without functional apartheid was in 1968, 52 years ago. So don't say this isn't who we are. It, it is. It's when the worst instincts went out in that struggle within the soul. We have to learn from that. I'm not saying all that and therefore saying America's bad, but I am saying that America has failed in the past. It has also succeeded. And the lesson, again, if you use your enlightenment era brain, is how do you learn from the brighter hours in order to replicate those as opposed to repeating the darker hours? That's the lesson of history. That's the utility of history. Because what do we celebrate? What do we commemorate in, in, a, in a positive way? You and I are not going to sit here this afternoon and talk about how important it was and noble it was that Bull Connor enforced the Jim Crow laws of the American South. No, we're probably going to talk about John Lewis and Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and Ella Baker and Septima Clark and Diane Nash, who said, no, those laws were unjust. And what was the most important sentence ever originally rendered in English, that all men were created equal and were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, had to apply to everyone, not simply to a few. And so when we build monuments, when you drive through Washington, the monuments you see may be to very flawed figures, but they were to figures who were at heart devoted to a system that had the capacity for amendment and adjustment to liberate and not to uh, in, in, enslave. And so even if you don't want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, I would make an appeal to vanity. Does the, do you want to be the generation that liberated and opened our arms more widely? Do you want to be the America of Seneca Falls and Selma and Stonewall? Do you want to be the America of Frederick Douglass and Alice Paul and John Lewis? Or do you want to be the America of Jefferson Davis and Joe McCarthy and Bull Connor? Pretty straightforward question. Not simple. It's not a simple question, but it is a straightforward one. With all due respect, a lot of people don't, you named historical figures, and a lot of people think they're saving or trying to save the country from socialism. They have a mission. They may not know who Joe McCarthy was or Bull Connor or, or what Jim Crow was. So, so they have a different point of view and they love America or they may love America. I don't question anyone's patriotism. But the point is they see that they're trying to do the right thing. Once again, it's another point of view. I am all for other points of view. Look, I'm George Herbert Walker Bush's biographer, and I'm on MSNBC, and I addressed the Democratic National Convention 
only on the condition that I wouldn't have to say anything I didn't want to say. So you try to figure it out. Uh, I have voted for Republicans. I have voted for Democrats. I probably voted for more Republicans for president than I have Democrats. I'd have to sit down and figure it out. Uh, you and I are talking right now because when I was a kid, Ronald Reagan captured my imagination. Uh, I resist the uh, character characterization of every previous Republican as somehow a, a complicit precursor to where we are now. I totally understand people who think somehow or another that the other party will lead us from a path of democratic capitalism devoted to prosperity uh, into a more state-centric world. I understand the instinct. But then you have to use the frontal part of your brain. And you have to think, why is it that the stock market actually does better historically under democratic presidents? Which it does. Go look it up. Uh, do you really believe, not you, but does the person offering that viewpoint do you really believe Joe Biden is a radical democratic socialist? Have you met the guy? Now, then people are going to say, well, you know, he's going to be controlled. It's, it's, a, it's a Trojan horse and, and all these liberals are going to come in and take all our money. I, I would argue that if you feel that way, think about American history in this light. And maybe you end up still disagreeing, but take a minute and think about this. In many ways, American life between 1933 and 2017 can be seen as a figurative conversation between Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. Right? There were two central questions, the relative role of the state in the marketplace and the relative projection of force against commonly agreed upon foes and rivals. Right? And sometimes you could be closer to FDR and LBJ and sometimes you could be closer to uh, President Reagan and George W. Bush. They were kind of at the 20 yard lines and everybody else governed between those yard lines. This is not a sequential conversation, a sequential chapter in that conversation. Right. It's really not. And if your fear is socialism, then I think what you have to confront is, do you believe? that previous American eras, previous American presidents have done irreparable socialistic harm because this particular presidential campaign, no matter where you are on it, President, Vice President Biden would restore that conversation. By the way, I've blown this theory past uh, uh, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton and Obama, and they all agree that they basically governed on this part as part of the same conversation. And so it's fine if you're over here on the Reagan yard line. And I'd say it's fine if you're over here on the FDR LBJ one, because that's a field where we can run. We can argue. We can get to a certain place. That's a very reasonable and sure sort of dorky way of, of looking at it. And politics is not always about rationality. It's often about elemental feeling. But I would suggest that the fear of a uh, suddenly socialistic turn with this particular Democratic nominee for president is an irrational fear. Uh, the broader concern about 
the economic health of the country is a totally rational one. But what is it about the president's, the incumbent president's performance, particularly in the last eight or nine months, when we are self-evidently confronted with a pandemic that has created structural economic realities that we're going to be dealing with for a long time to come. What is it about his performance that would rationally make you say, yeah, I want more of that? We're going to take a brief break. And when we return, we'll have more of our conversation with John Meacham and questions from our virtual audience, too. Stay with us. You're listening to the Conversations on the Green podcast. I'm Jane Whitney. This conversation was recorded on October 25th, 2020, and our guest is Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Meacham. Right now, we are going to take our first video question from someone in Texas. Here it is. Hi, my name is Robert. I'm from Texas. My question to you is, in history, has our nation ever been this divided? Thank you. Now, we have been talking about that. Yeah, ideologically, though, let me just make one point about something, which is that I can't remember in my lifetime being in a place where if I saw somebody in the distance wearing a hat that had a slogan that I didn't agree with, I made assumptions about that person. This is a time, uh, because of ideological disagreements, that has ended friendships, it's ended marriages, it's ended relationships. And I guess, again, to go to the depth of where we are, how you've made some suggestions as to how we go back to reason, we pull out of this. But do you have anything to add to Robert in Texas who just asked that question? I think that there has to be an acceptable level of division. Uh, We are we are beyond that point now. What I would what I would urge uh, the gentleman from Texas to do is, as there as as events unfold over the next week and the next months, because believe me, e- even if Vice President Biden were to become president in a fairly significant vote, and there's not not a controversy about the election, and the president doesn't try to delegitimize it, if in fact he loses it, there's going to be immediate, immediate pressure from the, the right part of America to put Biden in a position where he is seen as this proto-socialist, where he's seen as this pawn of broader forces. And there's going to be a concentrated and concerted effort to hamper anything he might do substantively. That's just there's an intrinsic political that we now have a machinery of political conflict that has an economic incentive to continue uh, to create and if not create to exacerbate those divisions. It's just a big engine and it needs any kind of fuel to keep going. And so that that's going to be a reality. There's not going to be the kingdom of heaven, no matter who wins it's not going to descend. Jane, to go to your point about the visceral, I think you're saying something about the visceral reaction. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Fascinating question. Arthur Slazinger once observed that more friendships were smashed up 
during the battles over isolationism versus intervention in the late 1930s and early 1940s than even in Vietnam. And one of the things about America that's truly great is that we don't spend a lot of time looking back. But one of the things about America that's really bad is that we don't spend a lot of time looking back. So I'd submit, right? right? I would submit that actually during the Vietnam era, you would have had that visceral reaction, right? The long hairs, you know, it was the age of Aquarius versus Archie Bunker. You know, you look at popular culture and you see the manifestations of these fundamental divisions. George H.W. Bush in his inaugural address talked about how the divisions of the Vietnam era cleaved us still. And so, again, I'm not saying because something has happened before somehow means it isn't happening now. I'm, I'm not I'm not a conflict denier uh, as opposed to a climate one. I'm not saying that. But I would urge everybody to have a sense of proportion. And this is a dark, divisive, and I would even argue existential moment for many of the constitutional assumptions, the cultural assumptions that we have made, that even under immense stress in the past, those have survived uh, the 1930s uh, and the battle over the New Deal and court packing and pressures uh, from the left. You know, uh, FDR said in the summer of 1932, the two most dangerous men in America were Huey Long and Douglas MacArthur because Long could lead a populist revolt from the left and MacArthur from the right. There was a plot. It was broken up by law enforcement. It was adjudicated by Wall Street bankers who were going to hire, attempted to hire a two-time recipient of the Medal of Honor, a man named Smedley Butler. You have not had the name Smedley Butler thrown at you on a Sunday in a long time. I'm, I'm, I'm safe, safe never, in saying that. Never. You're the first. Right. right. So here, but here you go. In, in 1933, Wall Street bankers tried to hire a Marine general to summon the American Legion to Washington, arm them, and create a fascist army that would remove President Roosevelt because President Roosevelt was attempting to bring the Bolshevik Revolution to the United States. You know, so that's a sign, seems to me, of division. Right. Um, the McCarthy era, same thing. Uh, Charles Lindbergh, uh, who talked about the silent majority that did not want to go to war to save the Jews. September 11th, 1941, he gave a speech in Des Moines, Iowa. Everybody should go look at it. That's a remarkably, uh, it, it will, it, you'll flinch at it. But a huge proportion of the country responded to it. It resonated with them. How did we overcome it? It wasn't that we woke up one morning and decided, hey, we're going to become a good country. We were forced into it by events, not simply by Pearl Harbor, but by Hitler's declaration of war on the United States four days later. We didn't declare war on Germany until Germany declared war on us. And so, Again, I, I, could, I could spend the rest of the week doing this, but my, my point is we don't serve ourselves. We don't serve the future well. Neither the present nor the future are well served. 
by being nostalgic about the past and falling prey to a kind of superlative hyperbole about our own problems, right? So it's actually not wildly productive to say we've never been X or Y because we almost always have been. What's productive is to say, this is a critical moment. There are moment, there are features to this moment that could create a country for a long time that we broadly put, we do not want. So what do we do about it? Well, one thing to do about it is to go back and look at what people did when they confronted similar crises in the past. And at almost every one of those points, the way America endured and the way America prevailed, both for good and for ill sometimes, was by realizing that they'd rather be an America that opened its arms as opposed to simply clenched its fists. Did you ever consider becoming a therapist? <laughs> the reason I ask that is because, <laughs> first of all, I could also say, you're like human Google. I, I'm not sure where that information, you could go on for a week, is mind-blowing. But I have to say that when I hear your voice on the air, you are one of two people who has the power to make my blood pressure drop, really drop. And I've heard well, other people say that. My husband, by the way, is the other one. But, but you, you have this ability um, to, to calm people down, which is why I asked about the, the mental health question. No, I appreciate it. And Lord knows, I've, you know, as a repressed wasp, I've spent a lot of time uh, spending, uh, spent a lot of time and money with uh, people who've tried to do that for me. You know, I don't see it as, I mean, it's somewhat therapeutic in the sense that therapy is, the root of the word therapy is work. And I do think we have to work at not falling prey to a kind of uh, narcissism of the present, uh, which is totally understandable and totally, you know, narcissism and nostalgia are the two enemies of progress, it seems to me. Uh, and so you can look okay. back without okay. being nostalgic and figure out, all right, these two or three things worked. And we need to do that. And one of, uh, so let's use the 1930s as an example. So 1930s, which I think is really is the most like this in, in a way. Um, big questions about systems. You mentioned the socialism question. You couldn't get good odds on democratic capitalism surviving the 1930s. Uh, you had a live experiment going on in the Soviet Union. You had a live experience, experiment going on in Germany and Italy. Anne Morrow Lindbergh, Charles Lindbergh's wife, wrote a hugely successful book called The Wave of the Future. And in her view, the wave of the future was not the messiness of democratic capitalism, but totalitarianism. Because, and see if any of this sounds familiar, the problems of the modern era were of a globalized, moving, rapidly moving world was not an 18th century system in self-government with checks and balances but was in fact a kind of strongman totalitarianism where there would be an ability to move more quickly than the constitutional order gave us the capacity to move. And so FDR was, you know, the, the night of his inaugural, uh, he's having a glass of whiskey like a good Episcopalian and going to bed. 
and an aide comes to him and says, rather pretentiously when you think about it, you know, Mr. President, if you succeed in saving us from the Depression, you'll go down as our greatest president. But if you fail, you'll go down as our worst. And FDR looked at him and said, if I fail, I'll go down as our last. He understood right. the stakes right. of this. And the way he did this was actually by annoying the left and infuriating the right. Our greatest leaders tend to do that. Ronald Reagan did that. The right wing believed he had been captured by Jim Baker and George Bush. Remember the pragmatists, let Reagan be Reagan? Again, I know everybody thinks mm -hmm. that somehow mm -hmm. the 1980s was this you know, elegant figure of bipart uh, era of bipartisanship, but it wasn't, it wasn't. And you know, he, betting on Gorbachev, he was seen as kind of a sellout. And yet great leaders, what, what they do is they challenge their base of supporters. They don't simply cater to them. What is the one thing we remember about Richard Nixon that's redemptive? That he went to China. Nobody, want, nobody on the right wanted him to go to China. They wanted him to be the, the Nixon of Alger Hiss and the House on Americans Activity Committee. Uh, Roosevelt's great gift was to do just enough to create a public sector that would give a little bit of hope. And it was just enough to enrage the left who thought he should do more and to create a permanent opposition on the right that continues to exist. We live in a world shaped by the conservative reaction to the New Deal, without question. Uh, you know, we, we could, you could, you could draw a chart. Uh, it began with the creation of the domestic programs and ended with right-wing conspiracy theories about Yalta. And so, you know, there's, there's, and Father Coughlin, and, you know, it's just radio figures and populism and identity politics. Right, right. George Wallace, George Wallace, you know. So I, I, I say all that because not, again, not that wandering around Madame Tussauds uh, figuratively or literally somehow or another solves all our problems. It doesn't. But a sense of proportion enables you to then, it seems to me, look at a choice like the one facing the country and saying rationally, is someone with the life experience of Joe Biden up to this moment, or do we want to continue with the incumbent president given his record on the issues? And at least it's a, it's a more informed choice if you understand the history. Absolutely. But I do want to talk about leadership style for a second, because um, Mr. Trump made a decision that he didn't want people to be panicked about the pandemic. So he decided not to really be, not to tell people, he sugarcoated what was happening. And as you mentioned FDR who really sort of took an, a totally different point of view. He felt the American people could take it. And um, every president has his leadership, his, at this point, leadership style. George Bush, when uh, after 9-11 happened, he got down on to ground zero, climbed up on the rubble with the bullhorn and said, we've got to pull together. We've got to, uh, we will get through this. He gave people a real sense that we would get through this. And after that, 
his popularity rocketed to 85%. Now, at this point, I want to look at some footage of a different president, Barack Obama, after nine churchgoers were murdered in Charleston, South Carolina, went down, and this is what happened. Reverend Pickman once said, across the South, we have a deep appreciation of history. We haven't always had a deep appreciation of each other's history. What is true in the South is true for America. Clem understood that justice grows out of recognition of ourselves in each other. That my liberty depends on you being free too. That, that history can't be a sword to justify injustice or a shield against progress, but must be a manual for how to avoid repeating the mistakes of the past, how to break the cycle, a roadway toward a better world. He knew that the path of grace involves an open mind, but more importantly, an open heart. That's what I felt this week, an open heart. <clears throat> that more than any particular policy or analysis That's right. is what's called upon right now, I think. Yeah. What a friend of mine, the writer Marilyn Robinson, calls that reservoir of goodness beyond and of another kind that we are able to do each other in the ordinary cause of things. Mm -hmm. That reservoir of goodness. Mm -hmm. If we can find that grace, uh -huh. anything is possible. Yeah. If we can tap that grace, uh -huh. everything can change. Right. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That say a wretch like me, I was, was and and we are back. We could listen to that all day all day long for sure, but at this point, John, I want to go through a lightning round of some historical parallels. 
things that we're going through right now and what we could have learned that would inform how we should behave today. And I'm going to start with the influenza pandemic of 1918. Was there a big thing about masks back then? Was that a problem? There was a. Oh, they're a, wearing a, masks. Here we go. Yeah, uh, there was. It was. Uh, it was not seen as vital. Uh, I think our, our public health was not uh, awareness. Obviously, was not what it is is today. One of the great uh, tragic parallels, actually, is that uh, an American president didn't take it particularly seriously. Uh, Woodrow Wilson never gave a major speech, um, never issued a major message about the, the uh, pandemic. It killed 675,000 people. Uh, according to our models, uh, we may get there this time, uh, which is particularly tragic given that we do know uh, at least what can mitigate uh, the, the, uh, the pandemic. Uh, I think that the, to me, the central parallel in the Wilson era is a cluster of issues as opposed to a singular one. So we have a pandemic. We had a rise in racism and xenophobia because of rising numbers of immigration. We had in 1915, the Saturday after Thanksgiving in 1915, the Ku Klux Klan was refounded at Stone Mountain, Georgia. The flames from that cross went across America. Two to six million Americans joined the Klan. 50,000 Klansmen marched down Pennsylvania Avenue in 1925 and 1926. Uh, it was mostly directed not simply at uh, uh, black people, but at uh, Roman Catholics, at, at Jews, because they were seen as un-American elements. There was a popular phrase called 100% Americanism, uh, that we were to seek to be 100% American. And the definition of that was actually a form of white nationalism as opposed to a devotion to a kind of uh, Jeffersonian, Emma Lazarus understanding of the value of diversity. There were five governors in the United States who were members of the Klan, sitting governors in 100 years ago. Uh, the governors of Georgia and Texas, which might not be that surprising given uh, the history of the country, but also the governors of Indiana, Colorado, and Oregon were members of the KKK 100 years ago. The 1920, so not even 100 years ago, the 1924 Democratic National Convention went to 103 ballots because there were 347 Klan delegates at Madison Square Garden who would not vote for Al Smith, the governor of New York, to be the Democratic nominee because he was an Irish Catholic. And so, again, I, you know, I, I'm not being dismissive of the problems of the moment. I'm not minimizing Charlottesville. I'm not minimizing Kenosha. I'm not minim minimizing uh, the fact that uh, white supremacist violence is now seen by the Federal Bureau of Investigation as a, one of our most significant terrorist threats. But I am saying right. that these are perennial forces. And the test for us has to be, how do we get those forces to ebb as opposed to flow? And that, the answer to that question begins with recognizing that they are in fact perennial. So if you talk about women having the vote, I've had the vote for 99 years. I haven't used it all those years, but I've had it. And now the, the driving force women have become, there we are, back in, yeah, we, we're rudderless. We need the ballot, votes for women. 
And now you're looking at a phenomenon which started back in 2018 in the midterms where you saw women running in record numbers. You saw them winning, diverse young women running and winning to the point now where we're looking at the possibility that in fact they will drive the upcoming election. So women have evolved as a real force. Yeah, as as of uh, immigrants, uh, as of the children, grandchildren, great grandchildren of immigrants. Uh, yes, I mean, we are now, in fact, this complicated chorus that, in our minds, you, you know, sort of in the popular mind, you think about the Statue of Liberty, you think about the Pettus Bridge, and we're a diverse country, right? I mean, that, that's kind of the way. I call it the PBS American experience, uh, uh, kind of the Lowell Thomas March of Time uh, sense of headline history. It's just now, as you say, genuinely shaping national elections and more and more state elections. You know, there's a huge debate uh, in sort of my dorky circles, but, but even more broadly, about were we founded in 1619 or were we founded in 1776? You know, is there is there a value to seeing the arrival of the first enslaved people at Jamestown as the true beginning of the country as opposed to the Declaration and the Constitution in 1787? My own view is that both can be true, uh, is that it, there should be a conversation as opposed to uh, a knife fight uh, between those those two years because one is they inform each other. Um, I would submit that in many ways the country we're talking about today, the questions that you're asking are coming out of a country that's only 55 years old or so. That 1964 and 65 really marked the beginning of the country we are today because of the Civil Rights Act, because of the Voting Rights Act, because of the Immigration and Nationality Act that President Johnson signed in 1965, which undid the restrictive immigration policies that had grown out of the period I just described about the rise of the Second Klan, 1924 and 25, we restricted immigration in such a way that that was the legal structure that prevented us, we chose to allow to prevent us from accepting more refugees from what was becoming Hitler's Europe. That was undone in 1965. And so no wonder this is rough. No wonder there is this significant reaction on the part of many white Americans to the loss of the centrality of the white experience and the, the white, uh, white folks being at the pinnacle of American power. And one of the questions we don't know the answer to yet is was the 2016 election a last stand for those folks or was it the beginning of a longer reaction as demography inevitably moves to where folks who look like me are going to be a plurality as opposed to a majority, uh, depending on how long I make it, uh, uh, we're looking at 2040, 2050 for, for that moment, that, that milestone to be passed. Right. I've never had an hour go so fast, so we want to make sure that we spend some time talking about John Lewis and your latest book. John Lewis, by your, your definition, was a, a saint. There's there are no two ways about it. And 
basically you feel that he was somebody from the age of four wanted to be a minister, used to preach to the chickens, I think you said. There was this, there was this sense of um, public service, of, of making sure that people were taken care of. He basically had this heart, apparently from the age of four. Um, how did Emmett Till, he wrote, John Lewis before he died, wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, which was published on the day of his funeral. And in that, he talked about how Emmett Till, who was a 14-year-old boy, um, was his George Floyd. What did that mean? Uh, well, John became John. Uh, John was born in February of 1940 in Pike County, Alabama. And as you say, he had a kind of innate revulsion against segregation. Uh, the only white person he saw with any regularity was the mailman. Um, and so there was an innate revulsion when he went into town in Troy, Alabama, to realizing that he was being treated separately simply because of who he was. Um, that was one tributary of, of John's life. Another tributary was the black Christian tradition, the black Southern church tradition, uh, the gospel, the Sermon on the Mount, not simply being about storing up of treasure in heaven for a day to come, but putting it into action in order to bring about the kingdom of heaven as much as we could here. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the third was exactly what you're saying, his discovering in the broader world that the feelings he had, the thoughts he had, were in fact not exclusive to him. And so he read about the Brown decision in May of 1954. He waited all summer for his new white friends to come to school. They never did, of course. And in 1955, Emmett Till, a young uh, black teenager who was visiting from Chicago to the Mississippi Delta, was lynched for allegedly making sexual overtures to a white woman. The white woman eventually, of course, recanted the entire story. Um, but that lynching, uh, that murder was an, an important defining moment, largely because of the bravery, the remarkable courage of Emmett Till's mother, who allowed photographs to be taken of her dead son. Right. And those photographs were published and promulgated, and it put a, an emotive and real face on the problem the crisis, the tragedy of lynching and segregation. Mm -hmm. And John saw those and he knew it could have been him. They were one year apart. And mm -hmm. one of the things that led him to, I believe his saintly disposition was this remarkable capacity to be willing to die for what he believed. He was willing to shed his blood mm -hmm. for these ideals. And that's one of the chief tests of, of a saint. Uh, the other thing about John that I think is really important, and I think can speak to the divisions that you've uh, been articulating, is one of the reasons I did the book was there are millions of people like me who profess an allegiance and an adherence to a gospel and a religious tradition founded on the radical nature of love. I am a Christian. Uh, I'm not a very good one, but I am. John Lewis closed the gap between profession and practice more than anyone else I've ever encountered in American life. 
he brought those ideals closer to reality than anyone else. And one of my thoughts about how to overcome this sense of division that you've articulated is what if some percentage, what if some number of those folks who say that and believe that their religious motivations are their primary motivations in the public square, what if they saw that in fact, it was not one party, it was not one issue, it was not one candidate that would be a means for them to see their faith enacted in public life. And John Lewis is the best place to start that possible conversion from a kind of partisan evangelicalism to a kind of loving one. He ran into the burning building, so to speak. I mean, at 19, he was doing, doing sit-ins. At 21, the Freedom Rides. He was arrested 45 times. He was beaten. He was hospitalized. But finally, on March 7th in 1965, he was out with a protest, nonviolent protest, for voting rights. And there was a standoff with state troopers. And what you're about to see will explain why it was subsequently dubbed Bloody Sunday. Here, advance toward the group. See that they disperse. And a very and short, a very time, short later, time later, that later, was a, tip, that was a tip, tipping point for what would become the Voting Rights Act of 1965. As, as I recall, is that what happened? Absolutely. That was Sunday, March 7th, uh, middle of the afternoon. You, you, get, you see the clouds of tear gas. Um, for years, John thought that the reason he had been retching and vomiting uh, as he, after he was beaten was because of the tear gas. Uh, we're now pretty sure it was because his skull was fractured. And one of the things that happens with a significant cranial in injury is, uh, is nausea. Um, uh, nine day, eight days later, uh, President Johnson went to the Congress. Uh, he gave the great speech written by uh, Dick Goodwin uh, saying that there are moments in the life of a nation when uh, there are turning points in man's unending search for freedom. So it was at Lexington Concord, so it was at Appomattox, so it was last week in Selma, Alabama. And the images you're showing now are images from that long struggle uh, that John began to undertake here in Nashville uh, in 1960. Always willing to suffer, always willing to take whatever was inflicted on him without responding. And to him, nonviolence was not a tactic. It was a way of life. It was a holistic philosophy. And it's one of the things that I think genuinely qualifies him for sainthood. And I, I got there's some pushback on the saint thing because people say, oh, if, if you say he's a saint, then he's removed from the ordinary run of human experience and we can't learn from him. I, I reject that out of hand. Um, 
this isn't, he's not a saint in a stained glass way. He's a saint in the classical sense. Uh, the church began to canonize people because they were e examples of heroic virtue that should be emulated. And so, yes, I want to put John Lewis on a pedestal, but it's not to make him unreachable. It's just so more people can see him. We have time. We're almost out of time. We have time for one final video question. So let's take that one right now. Hi, I'm Pam from Connecticut. In 2016, I voted for President Trump. Since he has been in office, there have been so many protests that no one is focusing on the issues that government can solve. As a wife of a police officer, this puts my family at risk. We now see ripping down monuments, teams and brands changing their name, and a cancel culture phenomenon. This is our history, which should not be erased. So my question is, how will this attempt at rewriting history create a positive impact on the future of the United States? Thank you. Kind of brings us to where we sort of started out, John. What do you, what do you think about that? It's a wonderful question. And without uh, the police and without firefighters and first responders, uh, we would right. slide into chaos and so thanks to, to her and to her family for their sacrifice and, and their service. Confronting history is not the same as canceling it. Uh, rewriting history is, another way of putting it is, you confront it and rethink what the past means. And so my test for monuments, uh, and I love monuments, uh, is does the person being commemorated and or celebrated. Does that person fit into a tradition of adherence to the constitutional promise that we are seeking a more perfect union? And they don't have to be perfect. If you wanna build monuments to perfect people, we will have no monuments. But that has to be the first question. And again, I'm a Southerner. Uh, I think that statues and memorials to Confederates and public land uh, is illogical because if they had had their way, we would not have been the nation we were that could have projected force across the world uh, in the 20th century. We would not have been able to do what we did in the Second World War. We would not have waged the Cold War in the way that the, the, whole, the whole arc of the world would be different and freedom and liberty and democracy would be much more, in my view, in abeyance than uh, an ambient reality. Um, don't think of those who challenge the assumptions of the past as mindless destroyers of that past. And I think that people who are eager to uh, have a different American story told have to be, on their part, cognizant of the complexities of the nation. And again, perfection can't be the test. Uh, I'm a biographer of Thomas Jefferson, and Andrew Jackson, and Franklin Roosevelt. So I know a lot about white guys who screw up a lot of right. things. But they also, at various points, did, did things that pushed us in a direction that made us a country that, as Lincoln would say, was worth fighting for. And the, the task of biography, the task of history, and the task of citizenship is to figure out where, it, where do you as an individual 
want to draw a line beyond which you think that on this side of the line, that's where you don't want to be, and you, but you do want to be on this side of the line. And are there people in the past, events in the past, that can illuminate your process of making those distinctions? John Harris wrote a piece in Politico that basically talked about America's chickens have come home to roost. And the whole premise is that we're a nation in decline, that our best days are behind us. I'm absolutely certain that John Lewis would have refuted that. But a lot of people feel that way. And since we've had people phoning in saying, what about therapy for the soul? How do you, how do you convince people that America still has better days, better angels, and better times ahead? Chiefly because there's been no moment in American history. And think of one, right? Find me a moment where everybody was sitting around thinking, I don't want anything to change. This is the greatest moment America has ever had. Reality just doesn't work that way. Uh, this is a constant struggle. Uh, look what we're trying to do. We're trying to run a continental nation in a multi-ethnic way on democratic capitalism in a globalized world with a system of government that in large measure depends on our voluntary acquiescence and adherence to a rule of law that does that restricts at some level individual freedom and choice and viewpoint. It just does. There's nothing harder. The easy way to do this is to have a king or a chief or a monarch. The easy way out is to be tribal, where it's your side right or wrong, and you don't have to think about it. America was founded because that way of being was not commensurate, was not answering the cries and needs of the souls and the hearts and the minds of people in the 17th and 18th centuries. And human nature doesn't change that much. So I don't think our best days are behind us. They may be, but again, I'd kind of wanna know what, give me a week that was that set of best days. It always looks complicated when you're going through it. Guess what? Because it is. There's not going to be a happily ever after. There's never gonna be a moment where 100% of citizens in the republic are going to say, that's it. I don't want anything else. This is the way I want the world to be forever, right now. There might be in our individual lives a moment or two where we think nothing could ever get better, but it's pretty brief and fleeting. So for I don't know if this is therapeutic or not, but it's true. This is a constant struggle. This is America is incredibly difficult. Life is incredibly difficult. And so what we have to do is figure out what will make us happiest and what does history tell us about the trade-offs between our individual happiness and, as Obama said a second ago, the happiness of somebody else. Let me leave you with this. Um, his, his last Sunday sermon, um, March 31st, 1968, uh, Dr. King was at the Washington National Cathedral. And he said, 
I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That's the way God's universe is structured. That's the way the world is made. I'm gonna go back again. We are not adversaries. We have to be neighbors. That doesn't mean we all have to be friends, right? I'm not using that word. (laughs) But we do have to make rational, commonsensical decisions about what we're willing to contribute to a common good that might cost us a little bit of personal gain. And I would suggest that the best eras in American life, the best generations, the generations we we should want to be like, have been the ones who have made that calculation. John Meacham, I think maybe in your next life, you should think about that therapy thing. (laughs) I don't know what, I I don't, no, seriously. I don't know what to say, except uh, we're so grateful to you for finishing out our season in such a substantive and, and sobering and yet hopeful way. And so we thank you very much for being with us today. And as we do sign off for the season, I want to thank everybody at Connecticut Public Television for being incredible, as well as our amazing staff for never giving up. And of course, for you out there for supporting this broadcast. And thank you for supporting the Conversations on the Green podcast. Our producer is Jay Holt, and the podcast is a partnership with Connecticut Public Radio. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't, and you'll automatically get new episodes when we're back with the next season. Until then, go out and find those better angels. Take care.